business class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly. Business class listeners, this is episode number 183 of Wisco Weekly. Thank you for always tuning in. Thank you for support of the show. This is Ben Fox. He's an Irish music producer and composer. Pretty chill, very loungy kind of music. You could check him out on Spotify. But Ben Fox has some pretty dope music, and I'm kind of feeling pretty funky this week. So that's why I chose this particular song. Anyhow, on this particular episode, listeners, Dan Chen. I kind of butchered his name at the start, but Dan Chen is the adjunct scholar at the libertarian think tank Cato Institute. And he testified before Congress back in June, late June. He testified before the House Committee on Financial Services on a public credit system. I encourage you to check out the episode page. I will add a bunch of links where you can view his statement before Congress. You can check out uh, the back and forth questions. And on this particular episode, I really wanted to kind of do like, kind of like that post-game press conference style, you know, after a athlete performs on the field and then they get interviewed afterwards. That's what I wanted to accomplish here. And I think of note, one of the things that dawned on me during this recording session with Dan was asking the question of, well, what is the problem? What is the problem that was trying to be solved through this public credit system? What is the problem that was trying to be identified? And so Dan kind of walked me through that. So this will be a very good episode. It's going to be pretty heavy. However, have a listen, because this could definitely be an issue that could come before the American public in the near future. This is Dan Chen from Cato Institute. I hope you have a listen. Also, don't forget, be sure you're subscribed to the show. I'll be back next week when I feature Oren Heatley, who is the lead organizer of the Recall Newsom campaign. Ooh, stay tuned for that. Anyhow, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. And holy, holy moly, Jesus Lord, this episode is going to get very, very deep. I'm looking forward to it. I'm probably not going to understand half the things my guest is going to be talking about, but he certainly does have all the knowledge to give us the consumers of the industry, the investors of the industry, just the the plebs of the of the industry, to give us some more information on how we can continue to navigate this new economy. My guest is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He's the co-founder and general partner at Nevcot Ventures. He's the managing partner of Banks Street Advisory, and he is a senior advisor for McKinsey's Banking Practice. So obviously, he is well-versed in the whole finance industry. 
My guest previously served as the senior advisor to the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where he led its fintech initiative, Project Catalyst. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show my guest, Mr. Dan Quach. <laughs> Chen, Jesus, that was that was terrible. No, you're you're good. It's it's hard. It's hard to pronounce my last name correctly. Well, Dan, but my, thank- my best friends, my best friends couldn't do that. <laughs> well, Dan, you, you you certainly you know. I mean, I guess let's consider that you, the your last name, the pr- pronunciation of your last name, considering that it's only four letters. <laughs> let's let's say it is. You are as complicated as your last name is pronounced. I can, I can, I can see that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so Dan, you recently, I think it was recently, testified before the before Congress, before the House Committee on Financial Services, and you know we're going to talk about this public versus private credit system, credit system, which is what you basically talked about. But I'm curious, you know, let's let's kind of, you know, if athletes, you know, after they perform, right, they get that they get their post game interview, right? <laughs> so, so first off, when was that House Committee meeting? Uh, this was about two weeks ago. I think it was uh, June 29th. I June believe 20th. that was the date. Yeah. Okay, so June 29th. All right. So imagine yourself if you need to take a breath, take a breath. Imagine yourself being put in that room, in that you know, you were you did via uh, a virtual call virtual chat imagine yourself put your back in that on that day june june 29th yeah you said june 29th it's done now you're in the press room and now you're now i pop my hand up and i say dan this is the first time you've testified before congress how do you think it went i think it went well i give myself at least a passing mark but a lot of people uh Email me, text me, uh, call me afterwards, saying that, uh, well, congratulations, you did very well. And I think overall, I did pretty well. I think I really got my my main points across. And I think we we uh, we we that was the first time we had the opportunity to publicly inspect the pros and cons of uh, of this uh, you know public credit bureau uh, proposal, uh, which I still think still uh, needs lots of uh, discussions, conversations. Um, so House had its first hearing. And whether the Senate will pick up, you know, um, um, you know, sometime to to do a, to to their version of the hearing, we'll see. But I do think it's a it was an important opportunity for the public to see um, what's happening uh, in the proposal and uh, what kind of sort of uh, you know uh, implications it will be for not just for consumers but also for the for the economy for the industry. Was there any was there per, any particular uh, congressman or woman? that you felt, you know, kind of misrepresented your argument? No, I think, I think everyone, you know, have to give the, uh, our, uh, our elected officials, the, the, uh, uh, give them the kudos for really understanding these issues very well. I mean, they have different views, obviously, which is understandable, expected. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans have different views. But uh, what I want to say to you, Dennis, is that the most interesting it's a very brief moment in a hearing. We had a three and a half hour uh, marathon hearing. And actually, just so you know, we didn't even finish. Uh, the House Financial Services Committee probably is one of the largest ones. They have uh, something like 50 members. So I think we only went through probably half, but they had another hearing later in the, in the day. So they, they couldn't have all the members um, joining. 
But in the three and a half marathon hearing, the I, I would say the most interesting moment was when uh, Congressman Sherman, a Democrat from, uh, from from California, so his opening remark in his five minutes uh, time was about, you know, he had a lot of um, concerns about this proposal, even though he's on the, you know, he's a Democrat, but then he quickly moved on to his questions, uh, but more on the reforms of the industry, but he personally expressed doubts and concerns about this public proposal. I thought that was very interesting. And uh, so I didn't have the chance to see that part. What, what were some of the doubts he expressed about uh, this public credit system? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're very brief, probably only 10 or 15 seconds, the most I can count the time. But uh, I think very similar to the uh, um, you know the uh, the concerns that I expressed in my um, in my testimony as well as in my written written uh, statement, which is the, the the privacy issue, the cybersecurity issue, and also whether this is going to be really again I don't want to misrepresent Congressman Sherman um, as far as I can remember, privacy, cybersecurity, and also truly the effectiveness of this proposal, whether it can really accomplish the lofty goals of the uh, of the of the proponents of this proposal and it seems as if the criticism of a public credit system was i mean y- you had mentioned you know the, these are the main criteria points the privacy um you know the the collection of uh, of this data and how it's going to be used it, this seems to be pretty consistent amongst all of the the politicians uh in which when they were asking you you know what what good could come out of this? What bad could come out of this? You you kind of always defaulted to again the fact that you know there's there's a privacy is, issue at stake. The the fact that you know how could you ever deliver a system to be so equitable and also try to have it as accurate as possible too? I thought that was another uh, element that you kept honing in on of the critiques of a public credit system. You know. Before we actually go on here, Dan, maybe it's important for us to understand uh, the, what is what is being proposed. What is the public credit system? Could you just des- could you describe and define that for us, please? Sure, of course. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so this 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 idea actually came about. I think first, I, I think the first time I encountered this idea was when uh, after the Equifax data breach in twenty, I think seventeen or sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. So somebody wrote a, um, uh, a uh, op-ed on New York Times, basically um, um, criticizing the 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 uh, the, uh, the 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 private system, and uh, without any details, proposed that we should actually regulate this industry as a as a utility and have a public system in place. Then this idea obviously picked up a lot of momentum when Dimas, the the the, the think tank, the progressive think tank. They came up with a proposal, um, the, the white paper, which uh, we we extensively discussed in the hearing, uh, to set up a public credit bureau housed within the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, the main idea is the private sector has failed, and we need to have the government take take it over in credit reporting, um, and uh, all the furnishers or lenders, debt collectors, they need to furnish the data to. The government and the government agency will collect all the data and somehow this agency is going to have the best technology in place to make sure the information is accurate make sure there's no you know duplicate files there's no mixed files there's no fragmented files and the consumer's information is, is well protected um, then um, 
then you, you mentioned the equitable piece, which is the credit system in, in many people's eyes is very biased against um, you know, minorities. Uh, people like me, for example. Well, let's clarify. Um, let, let's clarify, though. It's not just it's not minorities. You need to add the additional modifiers to that. It's low income minorities. It's low income, right? So obviously, these two things oftentimes they overlap, right? So uh, it's it's the it's the it's the women, it's the new immigrants, it's the low income consumers. Many times, regulators, policymakers call them vulnerable consumers. Uh, the system is biased against them. They have to pay higher rates, or sometimes, many times, they're not even in the system. They are called credit invisibles. Um, so somehow this government agency is going to fix all these kind of problems. And these problems are real problems. I'm not ignoring them. And I, you heard in my testimony, I, I, kept, I, I, I kept going back to these problems and the touting a private sector solution to be a better way to solve these problems. Anyway, so that you're talking about this as a problem. And again, this this kind of actually goes to something I wanted to get at. And, and let me just ask you at this point right now, and that is, so let's say specifically to the, I'm going to say in quotations, the problem of 45 million citizens, 45 million people in the United States who were credit invisible. I'm still, I guess, what is the problem there? The problem is... Um, Let's just give you one example. So a friend of mine recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, he immigrated from Canada, right? So he's got a established history in Canada, but he couldn't get a credit card in the United States. He couldn't get a car loan, couldn't, couldn't get a, a, you know, a, a mortgage because he, was, he had no history in the United States. And uh, so that, 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 that's a little bit more extreme example because he is obviously, he's not a uh, low-income person, right? So he's got a pretty established history in Canada. Um, but more, uh, more likely, someone who, uh, let's say, um, living in a sort of a cash economy, or someone just who uh, not used to, who are not used to getting credit, and the person pays the rent on time, pays his utilities, cell phone bills on time, and uh, mostly using credit card. I'm sorry, uh, uh, debit cards mm-hmm. uh, or prepaid cards. But that information is not reflected in the in the in the in the reporting system. So if the person wants to go out to some someday want to get a credit card or, or 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 mortgage, the person will not be even able to get one. So that's the credit invisibility we're talking about here. So many of these people obviously um, could be eligible for affordable credit, but because of the system is being set up today, again the system is not perfect. Uh, these people cannot get credit, and then of course also there are people who actually cannot manage their debt well, and these are the um, you know, um, probably not as responsible as they as the cre- lenders want them to be, and these people obviously cannot get credit. But uh, the forty five million number we're talking about here are mostly referring to people who, some of them at least, we don't know what the number is, but some of them would be a good credit um, uh, consumer, but they cannot. Now, one of the things that I think about when I, you know, forty five million people to me that's that's not a huge number. I mean, this is kind of the state of California. And so therefore you could kind of, I don't know, it seems like a pretty solvable problem, right? And then when you start to boil it down, right, to, and you segment that audience, it's probably less than 45 million that actually are probably even seeking some sort of credit. They can't go to the private market. They can't go through, you know, again, they can't go through a bank and apply for a credit card to start to establish credit. 
Uh, you have mentioned that, you know, there are other systems, and I think we're going to talk about this whole algorithm, but, you know, th- there are other ways that people can establish some sort of payment history, be it through rent, be it through their mobile phone, through utilities. One thing I didn't hear in that testimony hearing was, you know, because my wife, she came here as an immigrant and same thing. She didn't have credit. It was hard for us to get her a credit card. Even I as an authorizer could not actually, uh, you know, get her a credit card. She Banks were still turning her down until we were given the option to say, well, look, I don't remember the, the exact name for it, but if you give us $500, then we could basically take out credit against that $500. Secure and credit card. Secure credit. Okay. So secure yeah. credit card. I guess what, how come that wasn't brought up or why is that not given more attention as a way to start building credit? It's a very interesting question. So a couple of years ago, when I was at the CFPB, um, a, uh, a, uh, um, um, a number of companies came in and they did a study. And in their study, they actually, their conclusion was that a secure credit card, the, the, the one that your wife ended up using and, the, you know, and she used that to success, successfully build her credit, um, that should be a good solution for solving this problem, right? And, uh, and their wish was the CAPB could help them promote this, this product among credit card issuers. And if you look at the issuers, right, Capital One, Bank of America, you name them, almost all, I wouldn't, say not, I wouldn't say all of them, but most of them, if not all of them, actually have this option. They, they offer that product. But for some reason, I don't know why, maybe just because the way the card is marketed to consumers, um, the, the take-up rate has not been that great. Um, but what we see now, and again, I'm sure we're going to later on touch on innovation. But this is something that I'm very passionate about. When we see um, startups, fintech startups, they offer a secure credit card. And then we see lots of success there. And somehow consumers are reson- resonating with, with those cards and they're using them. And uh, they're using them to not to expand, extend their purchasing power, but also most, most importantly, help them build credit. So. The, the road to, to credit, there are many, many ways to, to get there. Secure credit card definitely is a very good option for people to do. There are also other ways, but in the credit reporting system, which uh, this hearing was about, is really about, you know, how, are there any other ways for people to, to, uh, to, uh, to build credit, right? So the existing uh, data available to lenders, but not through the existing credit building, sorry, credit reporting system, can such information be, you know, supplied or fed through the system and uh, get to the hands of the lenders so that this new, we call the alternative data, alternative information can be used to help underwrite consumers. And in, in this sense, what you're talking about is the difference between getting credit already through, you know, or, or getting a loan essentially from a lender and then having the, the the private credit market, the 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 big three essentially, TransUnion, Equifax, Experian, start to build your credit history and your credit profile. So that's you know that's the traditional way. The alternative data that you're talking about here are the things like rent, utilities, paying off bills, and having that be incorporated now into this individual credit profile. Correct. And, and that's already happening. So that's the main that's what point. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Right. It's already happening. So, so there's no reason for me to believe that the government needs to take this over 
because uh, it's it's not as easy as simple as we think. Oh, just take out, you know, get the information. All of a sudden, magic happens. People get access to credit. No, it it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of pipes that need to be built, and which can only happen uh, in the hands of a private sector innovation, innovative companies. And again, it's already happening. FICO is already changing the way they they uh, they they um, um, they do their algorithms to to incorporate such information, and uh, even without um, without the, the nudging from the government or from from even the credit bureaus, some lenders they just take the information directly from the consumers, and uh, and use that information in their lending decision um, process to to increase access to credit. And. Do you know at what scale these bureau, these credit bureaus are adopting this new alternative data? So obviously this is fairly new. Um, do you know kind of when they started doing that and then kind of where, you know, what the current status is today? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so Experian uh, first uh, worked with a company called Finicity to, uh, to uh, Finicity basically is a, is a data aggregator. Um, so they are they are the ones that, that building all the pipes. So they connect directly uh, with consumers' banking accounts. So uh, with consumers' full consent, so they have to opt in. So they, they click the opt-in button, then basically Finicity will, will import, well, they actually, it's, 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 far more, it's very complicated. They actually have to go through using the machine learning algorithm to go through the transaction history to find out you know, because there are hundreds of transactions in in the consumer's uh, bank accounts to find out what are the payments for your gas, your water, your electric company, Netflix. You know, that's the new 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 item they recently added last year. And if they, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm it's, sorry, Dan. I mean, you kind of have to laugh at this, right? It's like we're talking about trying to build a a credit profile on an individual in which talking about serious topics of, of things like credit cards and debt and high loans. And now all of a sudden, as part of this new model of developing a credit profile, you're like, well, have you paid your Netflix on time? And it's like, <laughs> Jesus. I know, I know. Hulu maybe too. Right, right. Um, yeah. Um, um, so anyway, so, and they will figure out this, that information. Then they will basically feed the information to Experian. And the Experian will, again, on an opt-in basis, take the information in, then they feed it into FICO model. And uh, so, uh, so that's, that's what they call experience boost. And the FICO independently uh, also works on something called ultra FICO. And uh, they're doing things very similar and uh, take on, taking this you know, additional new information, transaction history, on-time payment behavior, and, uh, and see whether they have any impact on consumers' credit worthiness. And, and again, we are, we're talking about probably this experiment has been around for about two to three years. Three years, I think, is the right number. So we're still very early in, in the stage. And not, again, not every lender necessarily will have to use that, 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 that score in their underwriting process. But I think, um, I think I'm right in saying that uh, Experience Boost is uh, using FICO 8, which is the most uh, popular FICO score that, that, that you know, most lenders are using today. Um, um, so I, I guess, you know, if a consumer actually ends up using that, 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 uh, sorry, if the consumer actually ends up, uh, um, consenting their, their transaction information in, 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 uh, in their flow, then, uh, they, they potentially can see a score increase. And so, and that's just what signing up through Experian, for instance, as opposed to signing up with FinCity, right? 
Correct. Signed yeah. up with Finicity. Oh, sorry, with, uh, with, with experience. With, with experience. experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, so, and, and the beauty of that is that uh, if you don't like it, you can always cancel it. So, you know mm-hmm. what? I don't like it anymore. Or you don't see a score increase. So, I can, I can tell you that for you and I, people like you and, you and I, if we sign up, we probably see nothing, uh, not, nothing change, in, in, no change in our, in sure. our scores because sure. we have a very thick file. But for somebody who's a, who's a new to credit, a very thin file or the file is too stale that you could even generate a score, then such information all of a sudden becomes very valuable. And the person could see a big boost. Big, again, is a relative. Uh, in in their score, so that could be that may be a difference between getting a car loan versus not getting a car loan. So that's that can be very you know life changing for people. It it can be very life changing for people, but what's also life changing is that if you don't know how to manage debt, and I don't know about you, but this is definitely common in America. This is common amongst you know I went through this growing up. I could say probably all of my friends and family that I know <laughs> experienced this growing up that we did not have these conversations about how to budget, how to save, how to invest. My father obviously was Asian. So yes, he was very more, you know, he he definitely had this very or this mindset of like, well, Dennis, make sure you save, make sure you put 10% of your salary into your retirement, make sure you have your nest egg, make sure you have your, uh, you know, emergency funds. But there was no strategy behind it, right? It was just kind of coaching talk. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess, tell me about you. Did you grow up in China or where did I, you grow I up? Did. You grew I, up in China. I, I, Yes, I did. How, how? What was parenting like, or what was it like for your friends and family when it came to finances? Yeah, I, I guess this is probably a little bit of Asian thing, right? So, uh, you know, family is always very. Uh, the tradition is always very, very conservative. We are very. Um, we're not really big on borrowing money, right? It's always, you know, you save, you save, you save, save enough for you to 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 buy something fancy, and hopefully, don't buy anything fancy buy something useful. <laughs> um, and obviously coming to America, the, the concept has changed, right? So you don't have to save 30 years to buy a house. You can actually get a mortgage and put, you know, 5%, 10% down payment. Um, so, but the concept is always, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, at least it's in my family, it's in my genes, in my wife's genes as well, which always try to save to the extent possible yeah. for a rainy day. But I think you, you actually uh, mentioned a very important point. So, it's one thing to give people the opportunity to to get affordable access uh, to to credit. It's another thing whether they can manage it, right? So, so FICO score is one such measurement, right? So FICO score, what I mean, if we break this thing down, it's not that complicated. It's basically telling the lender the likelihood of this person is going to pay you back right. for the duration of the loan, right? So you can pay eight hundred fifty. FICO, which is perfect score, that means the chance of this person defaulting, not paying you back, is very, very low. But it can still happen. It can still happen, right? Nothing right, is 100%, right? right? right, it's, right. Yeah, you, you take it's a chance. It's just probabilities. Yeah, you're just dealing with probability. probabilities. Right. So now the question is, with all this sort of new fund data, new fund data sources, all of a sudden people see a score increase. Is that just inflation of a score, which is not a good thing, right, in my mind? Is, if everybody is 800 FICO score, then what's the point of having a FICO, right? Right. Or you see this boost, this new increase. Does it, are these people, in terms of their, their credit worthiness, are they actually as good as the people who actually, in a similar FICO mm, band, mm. but, uh, you know, they, they, may, they, they build their FICO score based on their the sort of the traditional uh, data sources. 
And again, I, we are very, very early in this experiment. Some from my conversations with some of the people who are actually doing lots of modeling, lots of studying, they're telling me that the, 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 uh, um, these people, the sort of new, new to credit, these people actually performing as good as their peers, which I think is really, really promising. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, but so going back to my previous point, you know, you had mentioned that you know, there are some people that um, just by giving them credit, they might not, or you know, giving them money, they might not be good with that money. You know, and, and again, you're basing it off this system that's, you know, based off this public credit system, which kind of lowers the criteria by which you can determine if someone is good, um, you know, if they're going to be paying back their money or that that loan. Right. So the, so that to me, that's another kind of bigger problem that would be created almost a trade off, because certainly the access to getting you know, the access to credit certainly is a problem. What's a bigger problem is if you don't know how to manage that debt. And as I was looking at the, so how do you pronounce it? It's, I see it as demos that, uh, that demos, yeah, demos, demos, yeah. So demos, uh, in your state, in your statement, uh, demos. I'm going to read here from your statement. The DMOS proposal calls for establishing a public credit bureau within the CFPB, a seven-year transition period within which credit data will be furnished to the public bureau. Third, a credit information can only be used for lending. Fourth, the public bureau, the public credit bureau will develop new algorithms that minimize desperate racial impact by including non-traditional data sources such as rental history and utility bills. These four points here don't point to the fact that someone will not understand that if they do not know how to manage their debts, they are sinking not only their future, they're going to sink the rest of the American economy. And it's like, I can't help but think nowadays, Dan, that as we continue to move forward, at least over the five, six years, that we're if we do not help people understand how they can better manage money, we're going to continue to sink the American economy. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I think... Uh, um, there, there, there were quite a number of exchanges um, during the hearing. Both, I think, mostly probably toward uh, the question towards me, uh, the, the concept of of, of, uh, of risk-based pricing, right? So, should we get rid of risk-based pricing or not? So, I think this is a very important. Explain point that, that a little bit more for me, please. Risk-based pricing, basically, what it means is, if you're high risk, you're going to pay a high rate. If you're low risk, you're going to pay a low rate. Or in the term of the FICO. If you have high high FICO score, that means you're going to pay a low rate. If you have a low FICO score, generally speaking, you're going to pay a, a higher rate. So, uh, why is risk based risk based pricing important? Because that's how lenders or, or investors, because lenders, as you know, most of the loans will be a lot of the loans will be packaged and sold to you know investors in the secondary market. So, investors, if your if your risk is high, what that means is investors will demand a a, a premium. A higher return for taking higher risk. That makes perfect sense. That's how finance works. Um, and if your risk is low, of course, I have to demand a lower return because you know I'm not taking that much risk. And uh, the idea of getting rid of risk-based pricing, what ultimately what's going to happen is everyone's going to pay the same rate. So whether you're a responsible borrower or not, it doesn't matter because everybody's going to get the same rate, whether it's 7% or 8% or maybe 2% or 3%, lenders cannot really choose. So 
on surface, this is very equitable to everybody, right? Um, but in reality, we're going to see the degrading degradation of the entire credit system because lenders at the end of the day, they say, you know what? I cannot really do this because I have no idea whether you're a good borrower or bad borrower. Because even if you're good, I have to give you the same rate. And what they're going to do is they have to compensate for that. What they're going to do is they're going to actually jack up the rate for everybody. Okay. So, so then for, for people who are responsible, they're going to be penalized. For people who are not responsible, they actually get a free ride to, to some degree. But at the end of the day, lenders will not be able to uh, give as much credit as they would like to give. And so we'll see a, a, uh, a shrinking credit economy at the end of the day. So that will be bad for everybody, not just for, for people who are uh, responsible, but for people who are you know, having some challenge in managing their, 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 their debts, uh, it's also bad for them because they otherwise wouldn't be able to get some credit. Now they cannot, or even you know, they, they have to get um, um, you know, the, the credit they, they, they can get to probably has to be very, very high cost. You, know, the, you speak of the degradation of the credit system, and I, I firmly believe that would absolutely happen. But I also think that that is just the first step in this snowball to hell. You know, I, I don't know if you agree with that premise, but I, I can't really I, I was trying to think about this. Well, so if you have a degradation of the of the credit system, I was trying to think, well, what effect will this have? Let's say, for instance, on the markets. You know, I know, let's say in the automotive space and specifically the tier three level, a lot of dealers. Right. I could actually see a lot of dealers being for this. Why? Because that just means more sales for them. Right. So like on one hand, they're OK with this. One of their big problems, if anything, is just the is the whole idea of marking up the interest rate for profit and you know being capped at that aspect. But certainly if this means more sales to them, I, I almost don't see that they would think that having a public credit bureau system is a bad thing. But I can see this having a much bigger effect, obviously, on the finance and on the lending side. But I'm not I don't know how to exactly uh quantify or clarify that do you would 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 you happen to know like what could be the you know real damaging effects of a public credit bureau system so so we're, we're actually talking about two different things right one is the credit bureau credit reporting system which is what the hearing was about um but in the hearing we talk about risk-based pricing because i, I think a lot of the uh, progressive they also do want to get rid of risk-based pricing um because Unfortunately, that's the reality of, 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 of American life today. You know, um, if you happen to be a, a, a black American, if you happen to be Hispanic American, uh, it, 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 it's more likely that uh, you're going you're gonna to be um, uh, credit invisible or you're going to end up paying a higher cost for the credit. So their solution for that is to get rid of risk-based pricing, everybody paying the same, same rate. Now, there, there is a real-life example how this is going to really ruin not just the lending, but the economy, and that probably I want to say our country or not, but education. Everybody is familiar with that. Education. Um, I I often joke about this because I did spend uh, ten weeks at the department Department of Education um, a couple of years ago, um, and uh, I, <laughs> I I I I told my colleagues there that uh, the United States government is the world largest subprime lender. It's a joke. But it's it's got it's carrying lots of truth in it. The reason being, the United States government, in the, when it comes to student student lending, it doesn't do any kind of risk based pricing. You knock on the door and say, "Hey, I want money to pay for my tuition." Boom, you get it. No questions asked. Okay, the school tells you you need to borrow X amount. The government will write you a check. 
send it to your bank account or to the school and ultimately you'll, you'll, get, you'll get disbursements after all the fees and tuitions. No questions asked, anyone can get it. And after this was, uh, I think President Obama uh, basically, um, um, uh, I think it was a 2009, no, sorry, 2010, 2011, uh, okay. they basically took over lending for most part. Um, and uh, now we have, well, you know, $1.7, $1.6 trillion in debt. And uh, we have a huge problem now. A lot of people are talking about loan forgiveness, right? Getting rid of the debt, uh, cancel the cancel the debt, whether, you know, the president has student loans, right? So that's a huge problem because at the end of the day, who's going to pay for it? Let's say we have debt cancellation. Who's going to pay for it? It's going to be taxpayers. The money is not going to fall from the sky. It's the taxpayers who's going to actually foot the bill. Right. Dan, so Dan, Dan, you're 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 being too rational. You can't ask you can't ask that question. <laughs> who's going to pay for it? Well, somebody has to pay for it. The money doesn't go around trees, and we got to be we got to be thinking about these questions very carefully. So, if you get rid of risk based pricing in student lending, this is the mess we're getting to today. Of course, there are also other policy issues, right? Student lending is very complicated. I'm just focusing on sure. just a single aspect of. There's no risk-based pricing. You don't really factor, factor into the risk, factor risk into the into the calculus. Then you get this problem. And if we do this in in the credit market, private credit market, at the end of the day, who's going to pay off lenders? If you are a lender, if you're called card dealer, taxpayers, you, ultimately, well, if you're JPMC, if you're Citibank, if you're these you know large banks, and we did that oh, in, oh, in 2010, private, so yeah, right, private, mm-hmm. right, in, you know, in 2010 when the financial system meltdown, the government bailed them out, right. So, but if you're a small lender, you pose no systemic risk, and nobody's going to bail you out. You're going to go out of business, period. And at the end of the day, we'll see less access to credit, and it's bad for everybody. So, you know, this kind of reminds me of a, a guest I had on the show, Dan. Her name is uh, Michelle Corson from On the Road Lendings. Shout out to Michelle if you're listening. Uh, Michelle is the CEO of On the Road Lending, um, just a, a small kind of private bank lender in Dallas, Texas. However, she takes a very personable approach to her practice of lending. And I think this is kind of what I start to see in this progressive world where everything is about data, everything is about science, we have to make data-driven decisions. But at some point, it's it's nice to hear Michelle and what she's doing with her business, which is, look, of course, I'm going to take a look at, you know, if you don't have a credit history, of course, I'm going to take a look at your income. I'm going to take a look at your bank statements. I'm going to ask you questions on you know, show me your electricity bill. All these things that matter if you were to loan out money to someone else, one to one. And at some point, she makes the decision, and 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 her, you know, analysts make the decision that says, you know what, Dennis is worthy based on my interview with him, based on the documents he's given me. He is worthy of qualifying for this loan. I wonder. Will we ever get to that? Will we ever go back to that style where there's a little bit more one-on-one where you can look at someone in the face and say, hey, you know what? You are going to be worthy of it or no, you're not. Like I can see that you're going to take this money and you're going to go immediately and just waste it all at the mall. Well, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, I, I mean, kudos to Michelle and her team to, to find ways to, um, to you know, um, give people credit. Of course, if, uh, if they are, 
you know proven to be credit uh, worthy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, I think fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, lenders are moving further and further further away from the model. Here's the reason. Uh, one of the reasons I wouldn't say the reason. One of the reasons. Well, first of all, is obviously the 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 the, the uh, um, um, so things are getting so inexpensive today. You know, now you can all you need is just you know to to start a lending business. You need a laptop. You can sign up for Amazon Cloud, um, and uh, everything becomes so cheap. And uh, if you all you need is just a bunch of very smart engineers to figure out how to do uh, you know divide. Uh, devise a, a machine learning algorithm in your credit underwriting model, then you can start lending money to people, right? I'm obviously simplifying that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, lenders more and more um, depart from the old model, which is very in-person, a uh, lot of interactions. And, and there's also regulatory sort of risk there because once you do this in-person, then inevitably, sometimes you have your personal biases in there. So what lenders are concerned about is what if you know, it turns out that uh, I'm not giving enough enough credit to to um, you know what what they call protected classes, you know, women, minority, that sort of thing. Then there's a fair lending risk. But if you do everything sort of you know, my eyes closed, it's going through the machine. Doesn't mean there's no risk. There's still risk, but at least you take the personal any potential personal biases out of the system. So that's why I think lenders are moving further further away from the the old model, which is very personal. Um, and uh, and the lenders really trying their best to 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 help you, but we're 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 living a different age now, unfortunately. Well, isn't it the case though that uh, somehow machine learning and, and AI kind of starts from this point of you know being racist, being you know some sort of ist because the the set of developers and programmers that developed it in, in, you know implemented their own biases into starting off the program so therefore its outputs are certainly already biased leaning towards one way which is why you're having all this talk of big tech regulation of conservative voices versus you know liberal voices and whatnot no you're absolutely right yes the, the, i mean as i said there's no the, it's it, it's it's um if you use if you use <clears throat> automated lending system, you're definitely taking out the, the any potential personal biases, right? But that doesn't mean because the data itself could be biased, right? And how mm. you train your model, that can be biased too. And of course, you mentioned the people who actually develop this model, there could be any biases in there. So all these biases can still feed into this model and ultimately have, you know, bias, bias results. So no, the risk is definitely there. Um, but I think from lenders perspective, let's just first Get rid of the personal biases. Then let's let's worry about how to make sure our results are are not biased. And, and there are ways to actually test the system to make sure that there there will always be some kind of disparate impact. But the ways that you can reduce them. I I would just think though if if again the problem is forty five million, then it seems to me that it's a small enough population size that you could have a little bit more of, I mean, again, because in this age of Zooms and video chats that you can have these kinds of one-on-one -on -one quick interviews to start to approve more people as opposed to just overhauling an entire credit system and, and, and replacing it with something that's I mean, at the end of the day, of course, my biggest gripe is always going to be the fact that it's going to be government ran. And yeah, you know, so, I think you and I come from the same place that if their government's going to run it, it's just 
it, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for the people that are users of that system. Listen, Dennis, at the end of the day, here's the thing, right? So you may be of a view that 45 million people may not be big enough market. And actually, we're not talking about 45 million people, right? So the subset of 45 million, how yeah. big the subset, we don't know. Nobody knows, right? So you maybe have that view. So let's say if you're a lender, you say, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. And, and uh, I, I really do not want to you know, serve that, that segment. That's fine, right? It's your choice. You know what? I'm going to serve people who have at least 700, um, 700 FICO score. That's your, that's your decision. You, you, you go about doing your business. You can be successful. You can be lousy. You may make money, you may lose money, but it's all on you. Now come another lender saying, hey, you know what? The market is not being addressed. I want to really address the market. And, uh, um, and I, have some, I have my secret sauce, which is whatever the stuff we talk about, Ultra FICO, Experian Boost, or I'm just going to be using the cash flow data to underwrite them. Boom, I can be successful. I can lose money, but it's all on you. My point is the private sector is reacting to the problem, yes. right? Yes. So the, for the people who think that's a problem, they're really finding devising solutions. And even the big boys, right, FICO and uh, Experian, they're, they are actually seeing the problem and they think that's a market. They ultimately, there's profit. They want to make profit. Lenders want to lend people money. It's, it's, I think it's a really misconception that lenders just do not want to lend people money. No. Yeah. If these people are really credit worthy, I don't care who you are, what, what right. kind of skin color you have, what kind of religion you believe. You are male or women. You are, um, you know, you you are you are you're white, black, Asian, or Hispanic. It doesn't matter. If I if you can pay me back, I'll lend you money every day. Well, there is a color that capitalists do care about. The color of money. The color of green. That's right. The color <laughs> of money. Yes. I mean, there's good and bad. You know, I'm not saying greed is good. That's that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm saying is there's um. In my no, no, you're, 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 you're saying exactly what, you know, it makes the most sense in that if you, there's no such business that if there's an opportunity for them to make money and provide some value to an individual, to a community, to a state, that business is well incentivized and, and has good intentions of, of trying to provide their services to those that need it most, as opposed to you know, this other model of, well, look, here's a, here's the problem. Here's 45 million. There's the problem. Let's just, let's, let's just, let's just swallow that problem whole into this system of, of government mandates and bureaucracy and boom, it's solved. It's done. No, it won't, you know, yeah, it, it will not, it will not be solved by any kind of government action or inaction. The government, I mean, I think the government can, what the government can do is really trying to make sure when you lend people money, you are being fair, okay? And we have the law in this land to, to, to ensure that, right? In the, in the, before 1970s, if you're a woman, no lender wanted to give you money. If you're black, lender didn't want to give you money. That's wrong. Now, we have a law to, to, to ensure that the kind of discriminations won't happen again. Well, it still happens, but at least not happen in the, in the kind of scale that, uh, you know, in the 60s when black people couldn't even drink the same fountain as, as white people. Mm -hmm. What the government should be doing is that to ensure uh, every lender is abiding, abiding by the law. The rest leave the, for the rest leave to the market. The market will solve a lot of problems the government cannot solve. And I think it's really good for the government to highlight this problem, right? It's okay and it's perfectly fine for the government to say, hey, here's a big problem. Shame on you, private sector, if you cannot solve the problem. 
it's fine for the government to do that. Highlight the problem. Let the private sector figure out a way to solve the problem. And my point is, the private sector is already devising solutions to solve that problem. There's no value add whatsoever for the government to come in and say, I'm going to take it over. Well, I, I would argue, though, too, which, again, always kind of comes back to this point of what is the problem? And 45 million people being credit invisible. Again, I'm for me, I'm still failing to see what is the problem other than to say that the problem is that 45 million people could be doing better, right? Which is like, okay, well, can we, let's, can we be more precise about what that means then of, of doing better? Like it's, it's, unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult if you're credit invisible to somehow get a house within the next, you know, five, 10 years, like you're, you're going to need more than just credit. Like you're, you're going to need, you're going to need a whole bunch of savings. You're going to have to make a whole lot of good financial decisions to get to that point of buying a house. Right. So again, this idea then of what is the problem of 45 million being credit invisible and why is it that there's being a microscope you know, being looked at on this, I, I'm still a little bit, you know, I guess unclear about, or it, it's still a little bit numb on me on why that is a problem. So again, I think it's it's really perspectives, right? So um, so again, some lenders uh, they do not they do not want to serve that 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 segment, and some lenders probably will suck at serving that segment because they don't have the experience. And some lenders they say, you know what, I'm willing to do that. You know, obviously to do that, you need to have a higher risk tolerance. Right, so every lender has their own sort of sweet spot in terms of what kind of customers you want to serve, and for some lenders, they believe that's a, that's a, that's their sweet spot. They can definitely go deeper in the you know subprime or sort of this is not subprime per se. This is really you're not even in a system in the first mm -hmm. place. So um, um, so I think at the end of the day, it's really a choice. So you may believe, and you know everyone has their own own belief uh, opinions. This is not a big enough market. That's fine. Don't 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 touch these people. But there are a lot of people actually believe this is a big, big market. They want to really serve absolutely. the market. Yeah, absolutely. And let them do it. And uh, my whole point is the industry is aware of this issue. And they, they um, you know, I, I know a lot of startups, they're actually, they're very much mission driven. They want to, they want to provide equity, you know, credit access to everybody. But at the end of the day, they are not backed by their mission. They're backed by venture capital. Okay. So if you're a venture capitalist, which you know, in the case I'm too, if I if I look at a deal, I say, okay, fine, I love what you're doing. You know, I'm very much for financial inclusion. I myself went through the process. I know it was not fun, um, but at the end of the day, how are you how are you gonna make money for me? I'm giving, I'm cutting your check. I'm not getting a return in some kind of an empty promise. I want to see, <laughs> I want this return, real return, because I have investors that invest in my fund. Right, so that's what's going to happen, is that uh, this is a, a profit-driven uh, private market solution that is not just backed by empty promises. They actually backed by real solutions that can solve the problem. When you leave that option to the government, the government has no incentive to make profit. That's what government is supposed to be right. doing, right? The government, the, the government's function is to protect consumers. So then you lose that that kind of uh, the the real drive. That whatever solution the government can come up with is going to be subpar for sure. Yeah. So maybe a, a last question on the public versus private credit system here. Um, has there been talks about a public-private partnership between lenders, the credit bureaus, 
and different states, or the federal government, that is, in in a way to attack this, as opposed to just completely overhauling, you know, the system? Um, I'm not aware of such talks. And uh, I also, you know, again, from my, my vantage point, I'm also very uh, suspicious of the effectiveness of such a, you know, potential partnership. I mean, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any partnership between the public and the private. I think there are ways that... Uh, and the, and the scenarios where such partnerships can really work. Um, but in this case, uh, uh, I, I really don't know how this can really work. The, I'm not really glossing over the problems of, of the private sector. I think there are problems that need to be addressed. There needs to be some kind of reform, which I already touched on during my testimony. Um, but I think for the government, any kind of government intervention in this space is just not really adding any value and can, potentially make things even worse. Imagine if someday the government took this over. Imagine you still have millions of consumers filing for complaints because their data was not accurate. Then who are you going to turn to? You have nobody to turn to because government is sort of the last stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, and I, I believe if the government took this over, the same kind of problems we're seeing today are going to persist. And the government is not going to really solve the problem at all. And, and, and I think, if, if anything, the government will be even worse at doing this because they have no experience, no expertise. Um, remember, um, earlier this year, um, the CDC um, contracted out the, uh, to Deloitte to devise this um, vaccine appointment system. The government spent $44 million on it. And with the system rolled out to all 50 states, and most states just ditch it. They say, you know what? It's not working. It's not working. So what that means is $44 million, boom, gone. That's $44 million from your taxes, from my taxes, from all the taxpaying consumers, citizens. That money is gone. No good. Dan, I did not know that. And I, <laughs> I, I really dislike the fact that you told me that because now I, this is just more like despise that I would have when, when, it do come, when it comes to anything like, you know, I guess government related. I mean, I'm still a proponent of public-private partnerships. I think that that model is kind of the best recipe. It's not the ideal recipe to getting things done, but I do think there's definitely merit to it. I think there are some good examples in the infrastructure space where Absolutely. that model yeah. has proved has proved very well. Yeah. Um, you know, let, let me put you on the hot seat a little bit here, Dan. And, okay. uh, you know, let's let's see if we can get uh, this this young Asian face of yours to sweat a little bit. <laughs> so you obviously worked at the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah. You were there from what, 2012 to 2017, 18-ish, right around there? Something like that. Yeah. 18. Yeah. Okay, so you you were there for a fairly good amount of time, and um, you know, would you if this were if this discussion, you know, if, if you were back at the CFPB and this discussion was going on right now, would you still have and feel and think the same way, so as to basically say that, you know, the CFPB who could control this public credit system, this public credit bureau system, you know, on one hand, you as the employee, you'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's my job to make sure that everyone can get the, the 40, the, you know, everyone can get loans and, and every lender subscribes to that. So I, as an employee of CFPB, I want to make sure that that happens. Would you, would you feel about this public credit bureau system the same 
now as if you were working with the bureau? Absolutely the same because, um, um, well, so here's the difference, right? So if you were, if I was at the CFPB again and the, the Congress passed the law that says you shall establish a credit bureau within the CFPB, and if I was assigned a task to help set it up, <clears throat> then my personal feelings, my personal opinions don't matter anymore because I'm, I have to do what Congress tells me. That's the law, right? You agree with the law or disagree with the law, that's not my job. My job is to do what Congress tells me. But that doesn't mean I disagree with that. And right. you have uh, your own. You still have your have, own personal beliefs have, as right. an employee, right? Correct. You you are you are you are being a, you know I'm wearing two hats. One is as a private citizen, I can be against this, but then I'm as a uh, career civil servant. That is my job to 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 do what I, what I'm supposed to do, right? So there are two different things. But um, that being said, I, I truly think uh, whether you are a CFPB employee or not, I think this is at least from my point of view. This is a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, it's really um, a solution in search of a, uh, sorry, a problem in searching of a solution. And it's yeah, that's solution that's how in search I think of a problem. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other way around. So, it's 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 um, I I what what really bothers me is that um, I think a, a lot of us are actually talking about the same thing here, right? So we 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 see, you know, there's a uh, there's access to credit problem. We see there's a potentially a accuracy problem. We see there's some problem with dispute uh, process, but these problems can be addressed by reforming the existing industry. Right. We do not need to go so far to the left to have the government take it over. And we're already seeing the failures and it's really happening right in front of us. The 1.6, $1.7 trillion student loan debt that we know a lot of these people are not going to be able to pay them back. And that they cannot even file personal bankruptcy, just so you know. They cannot file personal bankruptcy. Even if they do, the debt will still be with them until they die. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. This is not like, you know, you, you, you borrow from, you know, um, Bank of America for a mortgage, you file bankruptcy. Hey, you don't care. Because, because these student loans are backed by the government, essentially. Essentially, you cannot. You, you the only way for you to get rid of the student loan is two ways. One, pay the back. Okay. Secondly, you die. There's no third third way out. So it's 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 a very very horrible horrible situation we are in now. Uh, these these are the students who, well, a lot of them former students, they couldn't pay them back. And what are we going to do? You know, uh, we're going to have a come to Jesus moment that someday probably. Yeah. The government just have to for the bill. Uh, I mean, that's not good. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that kind of uh, predicament is definitely a bit different than if you were to get money from a private institution. And you know, I'll speak personally on this, Dan. I I do recall, you know, back in two thousand eight, I went through some personal tough times, and I, you know, I, I was unemployed and I was having a tough time paying off bills. And finally, once you know, one of the credit cards that I had. Basically, I don't know what the exact terminology, whatever. It went in default. Essentially, I couldn't even pay it back anymore. It was going off to collections. And then it was like two years later, I got a 1099 
that's essentially because I didn't pay it off, it was deemed as income. So then I had to pay taxes on it. Yeah. And it was just like, I mean, it was just one thing after another. And it was, it was a terrible, terrible experience. And I, you know, I learned the hard way, but again, this goes back to my point of like, look, just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to be good with it. And if you're not good with it, you're going to screw up everything else in the system. And this 1.6, 1.7 trillion just slowly creeps up. And all of a sudden, again, we're at this point where it's like, 80 cents of every dollar that we make is just, it's gone. It's, we, we don't even get, take advantage of it. You know, I was trying to do the quick calculation in my head earlier today too, of like how much of a dollar goes to, you know, other things other than what we would want. Right. So be, it, <laughs> you know, essentially taxes. Right. So I, I think it's in about the neighborhood of 50 cents, almost 60 cents of, of every dollar goes to basically. We, we have no control over that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the government, the government collects the money and they, Listen, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with paying my share of my, my fair share of taxes. Right. But I think you know, I, I think government still serves a very important function, right? They have we need a military to protect our borders, right? To protect the, the uh, um, uh, American interests overseas or uh, at home, um, and we have sort of security, Medicare, what have you. These entitlement programs in place, you know, we cannot, um, you know, a lot of people rely on the, the, the income or or the or the, or the health care services when they when they when they when they grow into their retirement ages. Um, but all for, for the new unnecessary ex, you know, government expansions, especially when the private sector can competently and adequately address these issues and serve the needs. Listen, America, what, we have what, 14.6 uh, trillion. Uh, this is our um, consumer lending uh, economy, right? So the largest okay. in the world. And you're telling me that this is the most competitive uh, and the largest credit market in the world, and we 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 never we never uh, we never stop innovating ourselves, right? So you think about all the innovations. America is always leading the world, and now you're telling me the pillar of this economy, which is the credit, the private credit reporting industry, is so terrible that we have to literally tear it down and the and the and the, and rebuild it. That argument doesn't doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If if it's, if the pillar of this economy is so terrible, how can we have such a great economy? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it it. I'm gonna I'm gonna presuppose on your behalf that while the the discussion in front of Congress and the testimony you provided was needed. I I, I don't see if this I don't see this having a whole lot of legs. And this coming to fruition in the short term. In the short term, you th- we, you, we, we we don't we don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, we were talking about tactics here in the House. Does it does it have a chance to pass the committee? Um, I think yes, but we are already seeing at least one Democratic congressman expressing doubt. Maybe he can be convinced. I don't know. Um, pass the committee. Well, if we pass the committee, um, then along the party line votes, you can probably pass the the floor. Yeah. Senate most likely is going to die. You need two thirds. We don't have the the uh, the Democrats don't have don't have the Democrats majority. Yeah, don't have the majority. Right, uh, we have the same majority. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but but this is we're talking about only what two years uh, or th- three years, right? But things can change. You never know. And th- this idea, once it's there, it's going to be there forever, and uh, it will come back. I believe. 
All right. Well, Dan, so let's let's put the public private credit. I think uh, you've you've got my heart rate to race already, too, especially when you're telling me about a forty four million dollar grant that was given out to Deloitte. Oh, Jesus. Anyhow, hey, I actually, I'm not making this up. Just 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 Google yourself. No, it's on you your, know, it's ignorance on your time. is bliss. Ignorance Wall Street is bliss, Journal, my friend. They all, they all report it. Hey, this is not really the, the biggest sort of a failure. Just just look back 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. The Obamacare, the, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, governmenthealth.com uh, or whatever, .gov, healthcare.gov. That was even much bigger uh, spending. And you know that that rollout was uh, was a was a disaster. Didn't yes, work. absolutely. And I mean, look where we're at right now. I mean, look the the to me, probably the only benefits of that discussion that happened with regards to Obamacare being implemented was that health insurance companies removed the pre existing condition. That to and it was like we went through all that work just to get that removed. And like, I don't know, I, I guess to me that also like shows the powers that are beyond the individual control, right? Like you do need to have the big insurance companies go up against big government in order just to get one tiny little clause removed, you know, from a healthcare system. So, well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm, I'm really just focusing on just when the government has zero experience expertise in something that the private sector is good at doing, and they are actually doing that. Of course, they don't. They don't do it themselves. They contract. They contract out to someone. Again, the the those usual names, right? Big consulting firms take over. Yeah. It's it's a it's a million millions and millions of dollars spending on those projects, IT projects, and end up being failures. And uh, that's just that's just horrible. I mean, I, I look at things. You know, so Dan. So for me, I constantly look at this lens of a customer experience, right? And that customer experience primarily derives in the private sector. It's, it's, you know, it's derived from data and how to optimize all the different data points in a customer journey so that the customer experience is as great as possible. And to me, like, you know, I'm having to call the California Franchise Tax Board and for weeks, can't even get through to anyone. I call and it's like, you know, it's it's like 3 p.m. And it's like, <laughs> we'll call you back at around, you know, in about two hours and five minutes. I get the call back at five o'clock, a little after five o'clock. I ca- talk to a representative and the representative was like, well, our hours are closed for the day, but I just wanted to give you a courtesy call that, that we can try you tomorrow. And it's like, I don't get this. <laughs> I finally get through to someone, but you're only telling me that you're closed. Like again, these those are those like customer journey points. If you know that you, I'm going to be on hold or I'm going to get a call back in two hours when your office is closed, why do I even request to be called back? You know, you know, Dennis. The, the difference if this was in private sector was if you had a terrible customer experience with one company, you say, you know what, I'm done doing business with you. I'm going to switch to to a competitor. If it's a government. There's no competition. Mm-hmm. You're stuck with just one entity, and that's it. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about you in this final segment here, because I'm I'm very curious about you, and obviously you're well versed, well educated in, in in fintech, finance in general. You attended uh, Harvard. You worked in government. You're in the venture capital space now. You're an immigrant, which is what I got, which I want what I want to start with, and that is. You know, you as an immigrant coming to this country, I guess, first off, when did you come here and how did you start to develop your personal financial situation, your personal credit situation? What were some of the things that you you did? 
Yeah, so um, uh, I came here to pursue my advanced degree. Um, I went to Drexel University. They gave me scholarship. You know, I, I, I feel, you know, indebted to them for the rest of my life. Um, I had a very small monthly stipend, um, but I had some savings myself, uh, not that much. Um, so yeah, getting credit was really hard. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly how I finally became credit invisible, but I, what I was told was that make sure you pay your rent, pay your utilities on time, because if you don't, they're going to show up in your credit report. Which you know that was a sage advice for me. I I always tried to do that. Um, then um, I think I got my first credit card when I was in school through some kind of school affiliation. And I think, by the way, that kind of program is most likely illegal these days uh, because there was a lot of abuse. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, targeting predatory credit cards, targeting students. But anyway, I got one that, uh, in, in 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 that way, and um, you know, being just very careful. You know, I I. I went through tough times myself as well, me, me, me and my wife. Um, um, but we were trying to be, you know, as responsible as we could, um, trying to live within our means and uh, build up savings. It's it's like the same kind of advice that uh, you know our parents, our grandparents would tell us. You know, you always have to save for for a rainy day, right? Three months, six months, whatever. I mean, Susie Orman talked about six months. I think uh, living expenses all the time. You know, if you have the kind of cash sitting around in your bank account, in your savings account. And then, then you you can afford to really, um, you know, invest or save for retirement and for other things, uh, or vacation. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, we did this in the old-fashioned way. Uh, there was no automatic saving tools available for us. FinTech wasn't even a thing, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's the same habit, right? So it's like you know, some of the low-income consumers would do this uh, envelopes, right? You put money. When you get a paycheck, you put this money in this envelope for for rent, that envelope for 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 gas, for water, for electric, and the other for other things, you know, meals, lunch, dinner, what have you. Uh, so went through that process, and I think just you know step by step uh, building my credit. And uh, uh, I think when I first got our when I got my first mortgage, I think I that was the first time I checked my credit. Uh, sorry, my my uh, my my credit score was like seven twenty. I was very happy because it was over seven hundred. That's that's mm-hmm. good number. Now, obviously, I'm more um, used to seeing my FICO score over seven, over eight hundred. You know, and uh, I recently applied for a bunch of credit, and my 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 score took a hit. That was the first time in in three five years, three to five years, my score below <gasps> dipped below eight hundred. Shame <laughs> on you! Shame on you! I know. You. I I I I feel I need to. Uh, yeah, I need to pay my ancestors some kind of. Uh, you know, <laughs> I need to confess how 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 did I. You know, splurged in my credit applications oh. and oh. Uh, and uh, drove down my score so much uh, oh. under eight hundred. But anyway, I think I think to a point, it's it's about responsible, responsible living your life. You know, I don't think I'm a perfect. You know, we got I got my problems too, um, but I think try your best to live within your means. And if you borrow, try to borrow responsibly so that uh, it's it's you're being fair to yourself. Most importantly, because if you cannot pay back. The lender is going to hurt, but mostly it's you who's going to get yeah. hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it, it, you hit that spot on, right? At the end of the day, yeah, you might look like a, you might look like a schmuck to the to the lender that you can't pay back your bills, but ultimately the financial impact, perhaps the mental and emotional impact that being in debt can do to you, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just going to prevent a lot of progress that you can actually be making. But I, I do want to go back to actually what you had said. And first off, I want to thank you for sharing that, because I, th- I thought there was a little bit of good nuggets in there, that, as basic as they are, of how you got started and how you think about how you were thinking about money back in the day. And just the whole idea of, you know, yes, saving, but like you do have your different envelopes, right? Like that is a more strategic way of saving money as opposed to, you know, just 10%, 10% goes here and just save it there. You know, you, you, you kind of had a better method there of like, okay, this is for my emergency fund for rent. This is my emergency fund for, for healthcare, whatever it is that that's great. And I hope listeners take something away from that. Um, the, the other thing that it, it, when you're talking about how you were doing this, what kind of was resonating to me was just the idea of discipline and I feel like that's almost a very tough thing to do these days is to maintain that discipline, to live within your means, to know that, look, don't go and buy that food, you know, this week. W- try to wait at least till next month. And somehow that discipline is much tougher to do these days. And I'm sure in the face of social media, that's that's not going to help, you know, someone's <laughs> discipline either, you know? Yeah, that's a uh, that's a shame. I I, uh, I I I do think discipline is definitely needed. I think um, uh, there needs to be some kind of right balance. There there needs to be a right balance between a, a between consumption and the savings. And I think the good thing is um, uh, again, I'm I'm a, I'm a huge you know proponent of financial technology, financial innovation, and we are seeing some of the sort of the new new uh, new players coming to the space and. Uh, and, and they are actually trying to be very uh, subtle, very sort of um, um, working behind the scenes to make you more disciplined. Hmm. So we all live in very stressful lives, right? So we have, you know, I wear so many different hats. I've got different obligations and pulling different directions. And as I think a lot of people are too, right? So people have multiple jobs, right? They, they drive Uber. They actually probably also have a, have a, have a you know um, you know being a yoga yoga instructor at the gym at you know, three nights a, a, a week. So people have so many different things going on. It's really hard to really and, and not to mention unstable income, right? So if you work for let's say if you work for a a, a retail retail chain, uh, your hours every week may be different. That means your your income on a weekly basis will be different. Your expenses can be also very volatile. Right. If your car breaks down, who's going to fix it? Right. Do you have extra money? If you're if 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 you're uh, if you're getting sick, you 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 know you, how do you take care of your kids? So all these things are making our lives really harder than probably they were before. Uh, of course, with uh, with that, we also have more conveniences. Technologies can really do better. So some of the companies are really trying to help you save really effortlessly. So I'm, I'm working with a company called Digit. Uh, they've been around for a number of years. Um, is that just D-I-G-I-T? Digit. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the name, Digit. So what they do is they really, they use, again, this, this big name, machine learning algorithms, their secret sauce, to help you save money behind the scenes. So every day, they will look at your, your expenses. They'll say, hey, maybe I can shave off maybe a dollar or two if you really are tight in your budget. And put it aside without you even lifting your finger. You just say, okay, you know, you don't even know this is happening quietly behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden you have a small pot of money 
to help you, you know, deal with some kind of emergencies. So it's not a lot of money, but it's a small, it's a small amount that can really that. get you through. Yeah. So they're doing that. And also there are, there are, there are um, companies that are, you know, we talked about earlier about helping you uh, build credit, right? So you heard of this thing called, uh, um, um, what it calls, uh, CBA is uh, um, credit building loans. Okay. So credit building loans are basically, you, you basically pay yourself and in a way to build a credit. So it's like the secured credit card, you're saying? It's different. It's different. different. Let's say you, you, you go, so that's your local credit union offers this program. Say, say okay, I'm going to put your money, pay me a hundred bucks a month. I'm just making this up, yeah, right? Yeah. For 12 months, right? Every, every, every month you give me a hundred bucks. I put the hundred bucks in, in, a, in a CD, right? You cannot take the money out until the CD matures. After 12 months, the CD rate that says 50 basis points, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to pay you 1200 bucks plus, you know, uh, $50 interest in return. Okay. And every hundred dollars you make to the CD, that's, that gets reported to, to the bureaus. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's counted as a uh, on-time payment. Of course, if you're late, if you don't pay that, that's, that's going to work against you, of course. Mm -hmm. So, this used to happen only at a very, very small scale at local level. A local credit union can offer you that, but you have to be a member of the credit union. You have to live within sort of, you know, 50 miles. Yeah. Right. Um, in, in whatever a, in whatever neighborhood. it is, the criteria of qualifying right. for membership now with, in the with, credit with the innovation, union. Now, all of a sudden, you can put us in a mobile phone. Anyone in a country can access that, that kind of product. And we've seen a lot of companies are doing this and they're doing very successfully. Um, uh, Self is, an, is a company, uh, they're based in, 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 in Austin, Texas. They're just offering this credit builder loans. They started a couple of years ago and nobody thought that would be successful. Now, all of a sudden, real people getting real loans from them and now they, they have a secure credit card. And all of a sudden, not only you can build a credit through the CBAs, you can have a secure credit card to extend your purchasing power and also further build your credit. So I think these are all very positive things that technology can bring us, can really help um, consumers if they if they sort of lack the discipline or if they lack the access to help them build credit technology can definitely help but at the end of the day of course if you want to live a successful financially you know responsible life you ultimately needs to be taking control of your own finances you need to be consciously be more disciplined more careful yeah. and it's not just about saving for a rainy day it's about saving for retirement saving for college you know, it's there are a lot of things that we need to do in our lives. Okay, so let me flip the table here. Last question here for you, last topic here for you. And that is, so we talked about what it was like for you saving money, getting, you know, um, the, 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 the discipline that you exuded uh, in saving money and being responsible with money. Now that you're in money, now that you're, you know, you're managing money, be it your own or other people's, what are some of the you know, hard lessons or tips you have now that you're in this position of managing money? Wow. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. Uh, what, uh, I don't know if I have any tips for people, uh, for, the, for, your, for, your, for your for your audience. Um, um, I think it's, it's obvious, I mean, you know, different, different, I guess I'm on the other side of the table now, uh, right. giving money away, uh, but I have to be actually be even more careful. I mean, exactly. venture, venture business is a, is a risk-taking business, right? So, so my, my investors expect me to take great amount of risk, but also they expect me to make a return for them. 
So, um, so what I what I do now, I can tell you is that I'm really focusing on this sort of uh, this newer solutions that can solve problems that uh, incumbents tend not to be able to solve. Either they ignore or they don't have the kind of um, expertise or or a focus to do. Right. So I'm, I'm meeting lots of really young mission driven founders that uh, are dedicated to, to solving these problems. But again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you got to be smart. You got to be able to tell me that you are not only having a good heart, you can also make me money. If you fail one of those tests, you're not going to see a check from me. You have to really fill both shoes in order for me to give you a check. So what, the, what was the first one you said? I mean, so you have to really truly feel passionate about. I think startup business is very different. If you if a founder doesn't really feel passionate about something, you're not you're not going to be successful. So they have to feel passionate. So that's what people call mission driven, whatever that 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 that, that phrase people use. So if so people if you, are really, so so if you're mission driven, you're passionate, this is something that you want to do, this is a problem you want to solve and and you're convincing, then for you that checks one box the second box is can you return this investment to me at whatever i'm sure you then say that well (laughs) of course with big multiples right okay so so that's the two criteria which obviously now you're adopting more of this like risk-based model um of managing money now is is there any little nuances of that risk-based model I mean, I guess it, it is the it's it's the founder and and it's the return on investment. Is there is there anything else uh, with that? So I mean, so I think if we just maybe there, I think there's a definite analogy uh, to what we discussed earlier on the show, right? So it's <clears throat> am I, I I'm an investor. I'm investing in some of the early stage companies. Sometimes they just have idea, right? They 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 barely have a they bootstrap. They barely just have a, a product. Uh, very few companies have been. People have been using it, so I'm taking a huge risk in investing in those companies. Yeah, what I need in return is a big return, right? Do I so because the failure rate is probably I don't know eighty percent of the times I'm gonna fail, right? Or he's gonna just, fail. Just gonna... on just on the businesses that are only in conception phases, right? Or mm-hmm. or even early stage, or even even you're able to go through Series A or even Series B, there's still a high chance of failure until right, you, right. you you you're acquired or you go public, then. Boom, that's a success. Right. Before then, until then, there's always a chance of failure. But of course, the earlier you are, the higher chance that you're going to fail. And if you fail, I fail too, right? The money just going to boom, disappear. I won't be able to get it back or maybe I could get the pennies on, 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 a, on a dollar. So I demand a high return. Same thing for lending, right? If you lend to risky customers who have a lower FICO score, or who show that uh, they have some trouble paying people back, being late in payments, default before, you're going to demand a higher return, higher rates. So you may be able to go out and get a 5% you know, interest rate on a loan. And for the same kind of loan, the other person may end up getting, you know, may end up paying you 15 or 20%. That's all because of the risk the lender is taking. So this model actually works. The only time this model fell apart was in 2010, when lenders just give people loans because they don't take any risk. Lenders just, you know, they 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 they, they sold the mortgage to uh, to the secondary market, mm-hmm. so it was off their books. They, they didn't care. So I think that really relationship broke down in 2008, 2009, leading that that led up to the uh, 
the biggest financial crisis that we ever um, you know, witnessed since the Great Depression, that was because risk-based pricing stopped working. Mm -hmm. So risk-based pricing is really, really important. As much as people don't like it, I think it's unfair, but this is really how holds this economy together. That's how and why our credit economy is the best and the most competitive and the largest in the world. Amen. Amen. Dan, how can people get in touch with you? How can people follow you? Um, I'm, um, no, I'm, I'm not really a big user of Twitter, uh, but I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, um, but my email is very easy. Um, Dan, well, my email is actually not easy. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, if, if you, if you want to share your email, I'll put it on the episode page. So business class listeners, if you want to get in touch with Dan, look him up. I'll, I'll, I'll put his Twitter uh, link, his LinkedIn link and, and email. If you have an idea, if you have something that he should entertain, remember his two criteria. You better sell the hell out of yourself and the idea <laughs> and be passionate. And you better make sure that he can see a huge multiple on his return on investments. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Dan, thank you. Thank you, man, for, for, for uh, enlightening me and, and the rest of the audience about uh, the public credit system. It's obviously a, a work in progress. Uh, your thought leadership to it is definitely exposing uh, you know, a, a system that, again, as you kind of always have put it, the credit system, while not good, is not broken. We just need to reform what is currently going on in this existing system. And we can, you know, more than likely each year make that progress to have the 45 million be visible finally and continue to bring up that bottom whatever bottom eighth of the economy um, into the economy. Because look, I mean, the way that I look at things, right, I, I often look at, you know, I, I, I trade all the time. So for me, it's like, look, the more money that gets into the system, the better it is for people that knows that, that know how to work the system, right? So I'm all Absolutely. for that. So business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly as we end every episode. Actually, before we end this episode, Dan, sorry, real quick. How do you say cheers in your native tongue? I don't know if it's Cantonese or Mandarin or... How do I say cheers? Um, I don't know. How do, how do oh, I say cheers? How, disgrace. How do, how do I know. I'm sorry. I, you know. your, your credit <laughs> is below 800 and you don't know how to say cheers? Oh, geez. I don't know how to say cheers in, in Mandarin. Uh, how, do say, how do you say Do I have to do a Google uh, translation? Oh, shame on me. Shame on you. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to look that one up. Business class listeners, as we end every episode, cheers. Prost, Lechaim, Kipis, Nastravi, Salut, Kampai, Mabruk, Dutsin, Gambe, Yamas, Nastarovie, Vo, Salute, and Saudi to the customer experience. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.